It's a beautiful thing when God ties his entire day of worship together. We started off with a Sunday school lesson this morning about scars and brokenness. And then to hear that special and just the more, the more and more Christ is magnified, the more and more I can't wait to meet him. Amen? Amen. We're going to be back in the book of John tonight. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of John. Uh, I have enjoyed it. <clears throat> um, I had a couple ladies <clears throat> come up to me after service last week and they asked me, are you watching the series, The Chosen? Have you watched any of the episodes or anything like that? And what it is, it's, I believe it's a, uh, a Pure Flix production. They make the movies like how many you've seen Facing the Giants or uh, Fireproof or um, some of those good Christian films. The same company, they've made a series on the life of Christ and it's called The Chosen. Um, highly recommend it, highly, highly recommend it. And you may watch it and analyze it and say, well, they left this out and they left that out and they left this out. And you have to remind yourself, it's the Bible. All right? There's no way, there's no way anybody's going to be able to capture everything. Um, John, at the end of this uh, book, says if you know, all the things were written which Christ did, the, the, the world could not contain the books that would be written. But uh, in this series, I highly encourage it. As we're going through the book of John, go watch this series. It'll give you a good visual, you know, what they were wearing, how they were dressed, the way they spoke, the way they talked, how normal the people were. A lot of us think that these disciples, these followers were just these ultra-spiritual, ultra-high-level men. They were, they were fishermen. They were uh, tax collectors. They were, doctor. they were people just like you and just like me. So I highly recommend that. That's my commercial break. They didn't pay me to say that. I wish they did. Amen. But uh, you, I highly recommend, if you have a way to watch that, you can um, definitely look into it. It's definitely something that's going to help us as we go through just have an extra visual. But tonight, um, we're going to pull our text, and it's a special, it's a very special text because it's the only one in the entire Bible that every alcoholic has memorized, all right? Tonight, we're going to look at the miracle of turning water into wine, all right? Chapter number two and verse number one. When you find that, John chapter two and verse number one. If you've ever met an alcoholic, you've ever talked to somebody that struggled with alcohol, they all know about this text we're about to read here tonight. Chapter number two and verse number one. When you find it, just stand to your feet. <clears throat> we're going to read our entire text tonight. It's just 11 verses. Bear with me. We're going to read and uh, let's hear what the scriptures have to say to us tonight. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone <clears throat> after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. We started out this series of John preaching on the beginning. Then we moved and we covered... The baptism. Then we moved on further and we talked about the brothers. Tonight I want to preach on this thought, the betrothal. 
the betrothal. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this miracle. Thank you so much for this wedding. Thank you so much for the wedding that is to come. God, I pray that you get me out of your way tonight, that you uh, fill me and use me, but yet you lift up your son. You lift up the cross. You help your people to be helped by your book, your word tonight. God, I pray and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Miracles, miracles, miracles. Tonight we are going to be dealing with the first miracle in the life of Christ, the first miracle he performed. Now, of course, we understand that his virgin birth was a miracle all in itself, but uh, the first miracle that Jesus would do in public would be this miracle of turning the water uh, into wine. And it's important to start out in making the distinction between a miracle and an answered prayer. You see, an answered prayer is usually uh, us making a request unto God and God using that request and God using men and women to accomplish accomplish um, that task. You know, we pray for, uh, we prayed for a little sweet baby this morning that was having seizures and we prayed for God to intervene and he used those doctors and he used those physicians and we got good report back that that baby was just coming down out of a fever too quickly and his body responded with a seizure, but there's no sign of any kind of ailments in his brain. Praise God. There's no signs of uh, anything in the future that would, could cause him problems that that baby is going to be just fine. But we prayed and God answered that prayer, but God, God used physicians to diagnose that he used uh, men and women to accomplish that task. A miracle, however, is God directly intervening to accomplishing that task. What's a miracle? Simplest to find in Southern vernacular, only God could have done it. Amen. Only God could have done it. That you know there was no doctor, there was no medicine, there was no antidote, there was no scientific biological reason that thing could have happened. It had to be God. So that's the distinction between the answer to prayer and a miracle. I truly believe in miracles. I believe they still happen. I believe God still moves every time somebody is saved under the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a miracle. Anytime a wretched sinner like me comes to know Jesus, that is a miracle. I've known and you've heard testimony after testimony of uh, people that have ailments and sicknesses that there's no cure for and that there's no antidote and the doctors have reached the end of their wits and that's when God stepped in. You've seen people that have struggled with addictions and, and things that had grips on them and there was no one that could help them. They couldn't even help themselves, but then God stepped in. Miracles still happen, but tonight we're going to see Jesus' first public miracle at this wedding ceremony. All right. As with any wedding ceremony, I remember uh, as Candy and I were planning our wedding, the first question that you ask is, as you're planning these things, you know, the first question you ask is, will you marry me? And depending on the answer on that one, you can move into the other parts of the wedding. And I remember our engagement, uh, it was our plan. We said we're going to have a long engagement. We're probably going to have two or three years just to make sure we have everything in order and we have everything. Yeah, that lasted about 30 seconds before she was like, okay, it's six months till July. Marry me in July. We're getting married soon. I want to be married. I want to get this done. Uh, I blame it all on her like she was the one rushing it. I didn't argue. Amen. I was ready to go too. And uh, <clears throat> this wedding is a very big deal. And uh, one of the first questions you begin to ask is, who are we going to invite? Who's the guest list? And every young couple does the same thing. I love counseling some of these young couples that I've had the privilege of marrying in the past uh, years and months. And they all do the same thing. How many people are going to be at your wedding? They all say, we're inviting 200 people. We're inviting 300 people. We're inviting 400 people. We've got big families. And I say, oh, okay. Um, well, what are you going to feed them? And they go, huh? 
I will say, well, yeah, you invite people to a wedding, they drive, they come, you, you got to feed them a meal. What do you think about $8 a person times 200 and you see their little wheels start spinning, you see uh, the, the little dollar signs start flying. And uh, I remember Candy and I were the same thing. She wanted to invite a whole bunch of people and do all these things and get this venue. And we sat down and we started crunching numbers and it added up to zero really quick. We knew we couldn't afford anything like that. And praise God for the ones that can. Those are the ones we go mooch off of. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> but... Uh, It's a blessing that some people can do that for us, amen? But uh, weddings are a big deal, and you start to ask the question, who are we going to invite? Who's on the guest list of this wedding? And as we start going through our text, that's what we're given. We're given the guest list. We're given who all is there, because Christ thought it important to make John write this so that we knew who these witnesses were and a little bit of their backstories. First person on the guest list is found in verse number 1. And the third day, there was a marriage... In Cana of Galilee, first person on the guest list, and the mother of Jesus was there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was there. She seems to be the one uh, closest connected to the ceremony itself. She, she seems to be the one in our text that's closest to that couple. Um, she was the one who initiated the miracle. She was the one that came to Jesus and, and brought the petition and brought the concern. Um, she would also uh, be the one that would seem, as we've seen in our text, that she's in charge. But we know she came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, you can fix this problem. And he said, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. He was not being rude. He was not being disrespectful. He was simply letting his mother know this probably isn't such a good idea. And She didn't even so much as give it a second thought. She looked over at the servants and she said, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And they said, yes, ma'am. And he said, yes, ma'am. And they went on to do the miracle there. Uh, But she was on the guest list. She was probably the one that was the connection between the couple and Jesus. The second person on the guest list is found in verse number two. And both Jesus was called. He seems uh, to be there just because his mom was there. It would seem at first read that Jesus was at this marriage by accident. How many know Jesus is never anywhere by accident? Jesus is never at a place by accident. He's never in, he never goes anywhere. He never seems to happen to be somewhere by an accident. Everywhere Jesus is, He is there for a plan. He's there for a purpose. He's there for a specific reason. And even though it just seems that He was just there by association, He was just there because He, was, he got a little invitation too. He got a little save the date too. Jesus' presence is never by accident. Jesus' placement is never a coincidence. He was there for a purpose and he was there for a reason, but he was the second person on that guest list. Next in the latter part of that verse, Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. That word there to use uh, for disciples is simply a, a pupil, a student, or a learner. Okay, we know there were about, best we can tell, five disciples at this time. We know Andrew, Peter, John, Philip, and Nathaniel were the five we know uh, that had been called by name by this time. All right. This would be the first time they saw God the Son work a miracle. Okay. This would be the first time they saw God the Son directly intervene and work a miracle publicly. Uh, and it would be, there would be some lessons they would learn. And hopefully there would be some of the lessons we would learn. Next on the guest list, look at verse 3. And when they wanted wine. Oh, don't we know who they are. Okay. Oh, don't we know who they are? When the wedding comes, when the ceremonies comes, don't we know who they are? Okay. They're the ones that show up uh, to sit through that ceremony, and they're interested and they're waiting for one thing. They're waiting on that meal. They're waiting on that chicken. They're waiting on that steak. They're waiting on that prime rib. If you go to one of them good weddings I was talking about earlier, they're waiting on that good meal that they want to spread out. They are they. 
they are they. You know who they are? You know who they are? So y'all do. Y'all are not in your head like this. You know who they are. Every time you go to a wedding, they, they may not bring a gift. They may not say any kind of kind words to the couple. They might even sign the guest book with their first in line at the dinner table, ain't they? All right? They were there, okay? And it says, when they wanted wine, they were the first ones to uh, <clears throat> be involved in this miracle and begin to probably murmur amongst themselves. And they probably got one glass, two glass, three glasses. And when they went back to get their fourth, the wine was gone. And this was a very, very big deal. We'll get to that more in a minute. Um, but it just seems like <clears throat> uh, that this, this crowd of people was labeled they. And it, and it just speaks to me mainly because I, I've been at so many weddings and I've been involved in so many weddings. And you just want to go up to those people and go, why did you come here? Don't you want to pray with this couple? Don't you want to give some good, kind words to this couple? Don't you want to encourage this couple? Don't you want to celebrate with this couple? And they go, would you hush? The food is getting cold. All right? But they are there, and they would be the witnesses to this miracle, and they would uh, get to experience it. Uh, in verse number 5, the next one on the guest list, let's look at verse number 5. His mother saith unto the servants. All right? uh, this word servant is the word dekanos. It's a, it's a Greek word, and it's the same word we get our word. Uh, see if you can guess. The Greek word is dekanos. Any, anybody want to guess what it translates into our modern vernacular as? I heard it over there. Deacon. Okay, it's the same word we get our word deacon from, deaconos. And these were the servants. These were the ones that had surrendered. Uh, they may have been getting paid, but it was not likely. They had just surrendered their time and their efforts um, to serve and to be involved in the service of this wedding. These would have been the ones <coughs> uh, making sure everybody had the food they had, making sure everybody had a seat, making sure everybody was comfortable and, and going through. And if you've ever been involved in Working at a wedding, you know how hard this could be. I'll never forget it. One of the couples we wed here recently, I looked at them and I said, who's doing your catering? And they said, oh, Miss Lisa Holland. And I said, okay, have you asked her yet? And they said, no. And I said, well, okay. And, and they asked Miss Lisa and Miss Lisa saddled up and, and became a wedding caterer overnight. And she got a crew together and Miss Bailey helped. She got a, uh, a crew together and uh, I believe Miss Shirley was there and helped. And they, and they got it done and they helped that couple and they wanted to be a blessing to that couple. But uh, these servants would have been the ones panicking the most. They would have been the ones the most stressed out when that wine started to go empty. They would have been the ones that were hired to make sure everybody had a good time, to make sure everybody's needs were met. Uh, and it's important to understand how big of a deal a wedding was in Jewish culture. You see, a wedding was the celebration, the culmination of a successful betrothal. You see, they would have a, up to a year engagement. And engaging wasn't just saying yes and just seeing how it worked out. No, it, back in those days, and some of you can remember a time in your generation where engagement meant something, and you couldn't just back out and change your mind. You couldn't just uh, wishy-wash it away. You couldn't just uh, flake out. Here in Jewish culture, even, if they wanted to back out of a betrothal or an engagement, they would actually have to go to the priest and get a bill of divorcement. They would have to get a divorce, even though they hadn't had the wedding yet in this culture. They would actually have had to go and say, you know, we haven't had the wedding yet. Uh, it's not completely official, but we are betrothed, we are engaged, uh, and it's not working out, we would like, and you would be marked as one that had gotten a divorce just because you got out of that betrothal. So a wedding is a celebration, it's a finalization of that betrothal. It's the family of the bridegroom putting on a show, putting on a ceremony to say, we have the needs and we have the assets to take care of this bride, to take care of this couple, and they're going to be okay. So to run out of wine would be simpler and, and modern vernacular would be like running out of sweet tea or running out of Coca-Cola, running out of uh, the good drinks. 
If you went to a wedding and the only thing they had to serve to drink was water, you'd go, huh, how's he going to take care of you know, Susie Q if he can't even buy me a Coca-Cola? And that, and, uh, that would be <clears throat> something similar in our vernacular, but it was a very big, big deal for, uh, to run out of wine during this time. And these servants would have been absolutely panicking. And then the last person on the guest list we're going to look at is actually bound in verse number 8. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. Okay? Now, the governor of the feast would have been what we would know in modern vernacular as the wedding coordinator. All right? As the wedding coordinator, he would have been the ones in charge of all the servants. He would have been the ones in charge of making sure that wedding and that reception went out and went on without a hitch. All right? I've done many wedding ceremonies uh, and <clears throat> um, in. It seems like the ones that have, it's not, it doesn't just seem like, it is, the ones that have a good wedding coordinator, a good wedding planner, the couple's day is just that much more special. Why? Because that wedding planner gets to tell uh, this side of the family to hush and be quiet and tell this side of the family to hush and be quiet and have everybody to hush and be quiet and let the couple have their day. The wedding planner gets to solve the problems of this showing up late or the photographer not taking the right pictures or the flowers not being organized the right way. Or There's so many things that go into a wedding. And a Jewish wedding was no different. This master, this governor would have been make or break and it would have been his approval that was needed before this new wine could be served and uh, think about it in today's terms. That wedding planner is so, so crucial. And I always tell people when they come to me and they say, we want to get married. And I say, do you have a wedding plan? They say, oh, no, we can't afford a wedding plan. And I say, well, you don't necessarily have to pay somebody. If you've got somebody in your family that nobody likes anyway, pick them. All right, because after the wedding, nobody likes the wedding planner. Amen. After the wedding, everybody's toes are stepped on. They say, that lady, she was so mean. She told me to be quiet when I was trying to tell that couple what to do with their lives. And she told me to leave them alone. And that wedding plan, I always tell them, just pick somebody that nobody likes anyway. Make them your wedding planner and everything will be okay. Uh, <clears throat> and that's who this governor of the feast was. So now we kind of understand uh, before we get to the bulk and the big part of the miracle, who was there? who the witnesses were, the social context and what was going on. This wasn't just a, a soda fountain running out of Coca-Cola. This wasn't just um, people having to choose water over their favorite drinks. This would have been something that could have destroyed this couple socially. This would have been something that would have crashed their reputation as a couple, would have started their marriage off on a bad foot. The community was so important. Your impression on the community was so important. This, if this would have happened, uh, this man would have had a hard time making social connections, getting jobs. This woman would have been kind of outcast. Running out of wine for a marriage ceremony, if I can't stress to you enough, was a really, really big deal. And this couple, when this came time and they ran out of wine, they needed a miracle. They needed a miracle. They were this couple and they had bought all the wine they could buy and that was all they had. And uh, miracles happen <clears throat> and they do some things. They do some things and they require some things. So tonight I want to look at miracles and I want to look at this miracle specifically. And maybe there's somebody in here that needs a miracle. Maybe there's somebody in here that's been praying for somebody that needs a miracle. Maybe there's somebody in here who has experienced a miracle and you haven't quite got to put it into words or use it to be a witness or use it. I hope this message helps you tonight. This message on the betrothal and this message on miracles. Number one, miracles require a problem. Miracles require a problem. 
We don't need a miracle if we don't have a problem. We don't, miracle, we don't need a miracle if we're not trying to encounter and trying to push through some storm or some trial or some terrible season in our lives. The, the problem is key to the miracle. And here we know it was a problem uh, what, uh, that, that was, looked small to us. Oh, they ran out of wine. But this was a social problem. Look at verse number 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. This would have been, again, the symbolism of a successful betrothal. This would have been the groom and his family representing that they could take care of this young lady, that they could take care of this bride. And to run out of wine would have been a complete and total social embarrassment. How many of you have had social problems? You've had things that you've tried to get jobs, but you just seemed like it just seems like dead end after dead end after dead end socially. And, and you don't know what's wrong with you. And the devil starts whispering in your ear and you say they don't like you. They, uh, they're judging you. They, they, you're never going to get anywhere because uh, you're not popular. You're never going to get anywhere because you don't have a lot of uh, position or political prowess. You're never going to get anywhere because you don't know anybody because you haven't uh, brown-nosed here and brown-nosed there. You are a social embarrassment. And sometimes the only thing that you get dialed in on is I need a miracle, social problems, but they weren't just social problems. They were sincere problems. They weren't something that uh, <coughs> was just... This running out of wine wasn't just something that was, ah, well, we'll just drink water. Mary was deeply concerned by this. Whatever her, the Bible doesn't give us their connection, but whatever Mary's connection was to this little couple, she was deeply concerned, so concerned, uh, and regardless of the way she was connected to the couple, she was so concerned with this sincere problem that she took. This is big. She was so concerned with this sincere problem that she took the pro Wait a second. She was so concerned with this sincere problem that she took this problem to Jesus. Isn't that the last thing we do sometimes? Our world falls apart. And we're on Facebook, we're texting people, we're calling people when many times we fail to just go straight to him. Praise God, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but we have a God who is always tempted as we, yet without sin. We have somebody we can directly call Abba, Father, and be right directly into the throne room of grace. We can come boldly to the throne room of grace and make our petitions and our requests known unto God. We can uh, worry for nothing, but without, uh, with thanksgiving and without ceasing, make our requests be known unto God. We have the power to literally take every single social problem, every single sincere your problem and take it right to the feet of Jesus Christ Himself. Amen. A lot of us, we know we need a miracle. We know we've seen somebody, they need a miracle. Have we taken the problem to Jesus? You may have texted somebody, you may have called somebody, you may have posted about it, you may have made a big to-do about it in your house, or what. To, but have you taken it to Jesus? I hope that you have. That was Mary's first step. You've ran out of wine? I know who can help you. I know who can solve this problem. And she went straight to her son. She went straight to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It was a sincere problem, but it was a spiritual problem. Look at verse number four. Jesus saith unto her, this is where King James English can make us a little nervous. Woman, what have I to do with thee? That's the way it kind of reads, doesn't it? But if you were to translate this back to Greek, when he says woman, it would have been the Greek way of saying Ma'am, ma'am, a respectful term. This would have been a sign of reverence. 
This would have been a sign of endearment. Jesus wasn't pointing the finger down at his mama. Jesus wasn't criticizing her for her request. Jesus was simply saying, out of respect, ma'am, what have I to do with thee? What he was simply saying was, you're so concerned about them running out of wine, ma'am, if I may ask, what's that got to do with us? And Jesus wasn't mad here. He wasn't sinning here. He wasn't angry here. He was just simply saying, mama, ma'am, Mine hour is not yet come. I, I don't need to get too famous too quickly. There's a lot of people at this wedding, and there's a lot of things going on. And I, mine hour is not yet come, and I, I can't get a good, huge gathering to myself. I've got to teach my disciples. I've got five now, but <clears throat> that makes seven more if my math's correct. I've got to go get, and I've got to go call, and I've got to teach them some things. I've got to pour into them. Mama, just so you know, we can't make a big to-do about this. That's what the conversation is here. Ma'am, respectfully... I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. And Jesus was going to do it before she asked Him to do it. Or He wouldn't have been there. Okay, Jesus was going to do this miracle. There was no decision making involved here by man. or There was no pushing on Jesus' buttons by Mary. If God wants to do something, He's going to do it. Amen. If Jesus was going to do something, He's going to do it. And uh, Jesus never did anything He did by accident. But this passage we're reading, this conversation, this discourse, was Jesus making sure she understood not to make a big to-do out of this. Not to give him any of the credit for it. And we'll see that he didn't receive any of the credit for it. He wanted to make sure this stayed hush. So she leaves this conversation. And we'll move on to the second point. Miracles, first of all, require a problem. Second of all, miracles revolve around people. Look at verse number five. His mother saith unto, servant, unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Do it. So the servants have come to Mary. Mary then goes to Jesus. Jesus is saying, or Mary's saying, they're out of wine. And he's saying, what's that got to do with us? And she says, Jesus, I know you can fix this problem. And he said, okay, I'm going to do what you ask, but just keep it hushed. Don't make a big deal about it. I, my hour has not yet come. Please make sure that I don't get the credit for this. I don't get the glory for this. I can't attract a crowd yet. I've got too much work to do, mama. Please respectfully keep this hush. And she says, okay. And then as she leaves that conversation with Jesus... You see them servants standing there panicking at this point because they would be the ones to be fired or beaten or punished or whatever the penalty was for uh, running out of wine. Now, we know it probably wasn't actually their fault, but it, usually it's always the lowest, lowest man on the totem pole that gets the punishment. And it, these servants were probably panicking at this time, and they watch Mary finish this conversation, and she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, do the servants know who he is? No. They said... Now, they knew Mary had a connection to the couple or they wouldn't have come to her. And she looks at him and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And they're probably sitting there with their empty wine pots going, who's he? Who's, who's this guy? Why, should we, why in the world should we listen to him? He looks like a carpenter. He just looks like one of them that's just here for the food. Why should we listen to anything he has to say? Yet they did it. Yet whatever he asked them to do. They did it. And it would almost, and this is my little 12-year-old brain trapped in my 27-year-old body, reminds me of just like if my mama said to a bunch of complete strangers, do it. Yes, ma'am. Right? We've all been there. We've all seen that, those mama eyes. Do it. Yes, ma'am. Do it. Yes, ma'am. That's the conversation that just took place here. Do it. Yes, ma'am. All those servants, they looked at Jesus, and Jesus began uh, to give them... 
the miracle and begin to put things step, uh, step by step and they revolve around people because people experience them. Those servants got a front row seat to the power of God the Son. Look at verse number five. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set, there are six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? We need wine, guy, whoever you are. Not water. Okay. Mama said, we're going to do it. Mama told us to do whatever you said. That's what we're going to do. All right, right, boys, let's go get the pots. Fill them up with water. Now, these are the washing pots, and we're going to get closer into those in a minute. It says, as the manner of the purification of the Jews, this is where they washed their hands. These were big pots, so they would have had to get smaller vessels and make several trips to, to fill those pots up. And It says they filled them up to the brim. The servants were the ones, and they knew, no matter which way they tried to explain it, when that water was made wine, they were the ones that got, took the small pots and brought them back to the big pot and poured the water in. And then said, this is such a waste of time. How many of you know where they, were, where they were at? This is such a waste of time. We could be halfway to the store by now, buying all the wine we need. We could probably steal it because we don't have any money. This is such a waste of time. I'm getting all this water. Who is this guy? What's he doing? And many times when we get to that point where we need a miracle and we are told to go get some water, to go do the next step, to call about your application one more time, to just go talk to the doctor one more time, to just go down the hallway and visit that sick loved one one more time, to just go knock on the door of a friend's house and witness one more time, to just go get some water and bring it back to the pot. You think this is such a waste of time. I need a miracle and here I am filling up this water pot. Here I am going and getting water. We don't need water. We need wine. This is such a waste of my time. Meanwhile, they were getting a front row seat. They were getting to be involved. They were getting to be used in Jesus' first miracle. One step at a time. One step at a time. God, I'm wasting my time. I need a miracle. What's this water going to do for me? Fill it up to the brim what he told them to do. People experience the miracles. People examine the miracles. Look at verse number nine. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, that was made. Back in John chapter one, we know we saw the text and the word was made flesh. And the word was made flesh in reference to God, the son becoming Jesus, the son of man. When the word was made flesh is the exact same Greek words, the exact same Greek language. The water was made wine. It was a complete changing from one state to another. There was no more water left in that pot. It was 100% pure fruit of the vine, pure grape wine. It was 100% grape. There was no more water in that pot. When they saw that the, when he tasted the water that had been made wine, what did he say in verse number nine? And knew not whence it was, but the servants, look at this, which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man, the beginning to set forth the good wine. He tasted this wine. He says, this is the best wine I've ever had. This is the best. Now, he got to examine the miracle. He got to taste the wine. But he wasn't like those servants that got to witness what just took place. It said he didn't know what had been done, but those servants did. He didn't know what had been done, but those servants did. How many times you got that call from the doctor and said, I don't know how this happened. And before they can finish their sentence, you go, I do. 
I don't know how this happened. I don't know where the tumor went. I don't know where the cancer went. I don't know where this went. I don't know where that went. I don't know where that light bill got paid from. I don't know where that car came from. I don't know where that check you got in the mail came from. I don't know how it happened. And you say, but I do. Because I was the one thinking I was wasting my time taking that water and filling that water pot over and over and over. And I was just waiting on a miracle and He gave it to me. He gave it to me. He got to examine it. And people are enamored by it. Verse 10, the bridegroom knew how much wine he had. And as a bridegroom, I got to be one. The best day ever. As a bridegroom, you know how much food you have out there. And you're hoping and praying not too many people show up and go hungry. And as a bridegroom, you know how much you have to drink out there. And you're hoping and praying nobody gets two refills and the glass guy in line doesn't get anything to drink. And as a bridegroom, you've waited and waited and waited for this day. And when it gets here, it seems like all those problems. So you can imagine as the master of the feast calls the bridegroom and say, Bridegroom, sir, i got to tell you something. He's probably going, Oh, Lord. We're out of wine. I knew there wasn't going to be enough. I knew there wasn't going to be enough. And that, <laughs> that wedding coordinator, that ruler, that governor of the feast says, normally they always put the cheap stuff out first. And then when everybody's well drunk and they could care less of what they're drinking at that point, then they bring out the good. But you, sir, and he's probably going, here it comes. I didn't even buy enough for everybody to get a drink. This is going to be such a social... But you, sir, saved the best until now. What? We're not out of wine? This is the best wine I've ever had. You saved the best for last. You know who knew what happened? Deep, deep down was that bridegroom. He didn't know how it happened. He couldn't explain when it happened. He couldn't explain why it happened, but he knew it happened. That was that miracle for that bridegroom. The miracle was experienced by the servants. It was examined by the wedding coordinator. And it, was, and it enamored the bridegroom. Miracles require a problem. Miracles revolve around people. But lastly, miracles reveal a purpose. Look up, back up in verse number 6. And there were set six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. First of all, this miracle revealed the Lord over the water. I want you all to see this. These water pots, pots were set out at the opening of uh, the whatever it was. It could have been in a square. It could have been in like a, an informal banquet hall. It could have been in somebody's big house that they rented. It could have been out in a field somewhere, like a picnic area. It could have been on the banks of a river. This wedding could have been taking place anywhere. But at any Jewish feast, at any Jewish ceremony, there would have been these big water pots. And these water pots would have been a place, and it was custom, and it was required. There wasn't no, please wash your hands. It was wash your hands, all right? Because these are people who've been handling livestock, who've been working in the fish markets, who've been doing... It was, before you come sit at this dinner table, wash your hands. And there would be these big water pots that we would see Jesus use to turn the water into wine. And... Uh, sometimes it was they would put their hands down in the water pots and wash all the filth off. Sometimes they'd hold their hands over the water pots and all the water that would wash off their hands would go down and drain into them. There were different ways that different uh, groups of Jews did it. But regardless, this would have been the hand washer station. In southern vernacular, that water was nasty. Okay, That water was gross. That water was tainted. That water was... Uh, 
putrid. That water was something, the last thing you'd want to do is drink it. The last thing you'd want to do is go anywhere near those water pots. Yet it was those tainted, nasty, half-full vessels, don't miss this, that God chose to fill with wine. That water that was so gross and so vile and so disgusting was with the very thing God went and picked out and he said, I'm going to use this to fill your water pot. I'm going to use this to perform a miracle. So you may just feel whatever miracle you need, there's no way God could use you to do it because you've already messed up. You've already blown it. You've already had a, a bad conversation with the person. You've already yelled at them. You've already blown your test. You've already become vile. You've already become dirty. You've already messed up. You've already fell back. You've already sinned. You're already in the muck. You're just a filthy, nasty water pot. And God comes and says, boys, fill that up with new water. And you say, what? I remember the day where you were just that nasty old water pot sitting there, that empty vessel, that broken vessel, that vessel everybody just came by and, and God came and said, this one, I'll use this one. How many remember that day? How many remember that day? I'll take this one. Boys, use this one. He was the Lord over the water, creation. He was the Lord over that creation. And it revealed the Lord of the water and it revealed the Lord of the wine. Know this, we won't go there for the sake of time. Moses in Exodus chapter number 7. Moses was the one given the law. And his first miracle was turning the water of the Nile River into what? Blood. Moses, the picture of the law, the man of the law, the man that wrote the Torah, the man that helped pen those 613 Jewish laws of Moses... His first miracle was turning the water into blood. That symbol of judgment. That symbol of the sacrifice necessary. But Jesus' first miracle was going to solve an eternal problem. His first miracle was not turning water into blood. His first miracle was turning water into wine. Something that was profitable for cleansing. Something that was profitable for encouragement and endearment. Something that was profitable to be used by the body. To be used by humanity. To enjoy and to endeavor and to move forward. Moses may have had a miracle where he turned the water into blood. But Jesus turned the water into something sweet. Jesus took what was filthy and what was nasty. And he used that very thing. He used that very wickedness and he turned it around he purified it he cleansed it and he made it something that would be forever profitable and when he shed his precious blood on that cross when he made that one time payment and ransom for sin that very blood that very stain on those cross that very blood that ran down Calvary's hill was all that was necessary was all that was required it was all that was needed to solve the eternal problem of our sin it was all that was needed Jesus here does something so significant and taking something that was completely non-profitable and turning it into something profitable. Whereas Moses took something that was profitable and turned it into something non-profitable. You see, that's what the law does. It takes somebody like us, that law, those Ten Commandments, takes somebody that, like us that we think we're Mr. Big Shot and we think we're Mrs. Big Shot, but it reveals our sin. Thou shalt not have other gods before me. I failed on number one. 
I've worshipped TV. I've worshipped money. I've worshipped pride. I've worshipped uh, <clears throat> different things. I've put other gods. But I've, put, I've mixed up my priorities. Commandment one, I'm done. That's what the law does. It shows something that we think is profitable is really not profitable. Our flesh. But Jesus took something that was left by the wayside. And he made it into something that could be used and be a blessing and take care of the people that were there. Don't miss that. He was the Lord over the water. He was the Lord of the wine. And it revealed the Lord of the wedding. In a nutshell, the governor said, I've never been to a wedding like this before. I've never experienced anything like this before. I've never been somewhere where Jesus was before. And the governor didn't know what had happened. The governor didn't know it was Jesus. The governor didn't know who to give credit to. And as a matter of fact, he gave credit to the bridegroom. And the bridegroom was probably gulping and looking around going, I don't know how it happened, but I guess I'm going to take the credit for it. And this <clears throat> wedding was unlike anything this wedding coordinator had ever seen. And you can imagine Jesus was standing there and he had no pride. He had no guile. He had no part of him that wanted to stand up and take credit for it. But you wonder what was in the mind of Jesus. And I would have a very good guess. It would be, you said, Governor, that I've saved the best for last. You haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet because you think this wedding is something special. You think this wedding is something you've never seen before. You're impressed by turning a little water into wine. Let me tell you something, wedding coordinator. Let me tell you something, servants. Let me tell you something, disciples. Let me tell you something, Mama. Let me tell you something, they, everyone here. Let me tell you something. There's a wedding coming. There's a bride that I'm forming. There's a bride that I'm shaping. There's a bride that I'm calling out. And it's going to take me a couple thousand years. It's going to take me a couple generations, a couple hundred generations. It's going to take me years and years and years. But this bride that I'm calling out, she's going to be so beautiful. She's called the church of the living God. She's called the local New Testament church. And I'm going to call them one by one and two by two and ten by ten and I'm going to call them and I'm going to plead with them and they're going to accept my gift of salvation and when I come back to get them and I take that bride and that glad reunion day and that wedding day that wedding ceremony you ain't seen nothing yet you don't know the glories and the splendors of that wedding are you on that guest list are you on that guest list you're either part of the bride or you ain't invited. As we close, Miss Joy coming to the piano. There won't be no they at that wedding. That wedding's for Christ and His bride. And some of you are out there, and you say, I, I need a miracle. My son, my daughter, they need a miracle. My friend, my acquaintance, my coworker, they need a miracle. This bride and bridegroom, they needed a miracle. Our country, it needs a miracle. Our leadership in our country, they need a miracle. You know who Christ used to accomplish it? The lowest of the low. The weakest of the weak. His disciples just got to sit and watch. As Miss Joy begins to play, what spoke to my heart the most about this message is this great miracle that was done. This is just the first one. We're going to see many more. 
Jesus did it. It wasn't the servants. It wasn't his mama. It wasn't any of the disciples that rose up to the occasion. And a lot of times, we just fail to be like Mary and bring that problem to him and just let him handle it. A lot of us, we try to give it to him, but we won't turn loose. A lot of us, we we pray and we plead and we beg for a miracle, but we're trying to get involved. We're trying to stay in the pit. We're trying to make sure he handles things our way. When a lot of us just need to be like Mary and say, Jesus, you can help him. Help him. Let's pray. Father, thank you.